Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. I'm Jag, H.V. Jagadish. I'm a professor of uh, computer science and engineering at the University of Michigan, and I'm the director of the Michigan Institute for Data Science. So the Michigan Institute for Data Science is the gathering place for all things data science on campus. And our mission is not only excellence in data science and artificial intelligence, but also uh, to be able to transform the way research is done in so many disciplines that are being impacted by these new methodologies, which turn out to be more appropriate or provide new approaches to address problems, uh, issues that people in different fields, different scholars are studying. In terms of what Midas does, in addition to sort of helping researchers do their work in their disciplines on their problems. There are a few overall types of things that we've been doing that I'd like to say a little bit about. So one thing that we've been doing is reproducibility over the past several months. In many areas, there has been a question of whether results, even published results are reproducible. There's a question of what methods have been used and so on. And a lot of this, not all, but a lot has to do with the complexity of the analytical pipeline that follows the data collection. So there is a question of how did somebody deal with outliers, what kind of cleaning did they do? What kind of analysis did they perform? Was there, was there a multiple hypothesis testing that produces spurious results and, and so on and on. And there's a question of how you document what you've done in your analysis pipeline. And this is not easy because sometimes one is doing very complex analyses. You, know, you snapped some images of some process or some materials and your analysis says, well, I saw three fault lines and there's a question of whether there were three or whether there were more and how do you know uh, what was classified as one? And that's only one tiny step in some complex story that resulted in some conclusion that you published. So we've been trying to bring together best practices for all of us to follow. And there is a tremendous amount of excellent work already ongoing at the University of Michigan. And we in Midas have taken it upon ourselves to try to find all of this showcase it, uh, bring it together, develop best practice recommendations, 
and then redisseminate it within our community so that we are all doing better in terms of the kind of work we do. A second thing that I want to talk about is the issue of responsibility in data science. As technologists, people are often focused on the algorithm and the metrics and how good the results were with respect to some carefully defined narrow metrics. So it turns out that anything that you do with analysis of data has impact on people eventually. And when there is an impact on people, we really need to understand what that impact is and be responsible about how we do that. So for example, just this morning, there was an op-ed in the New York Times about using AI to grade exams, which was done by the International Baccalaureate Certificate Program. And the thing is, if you're predicting somebody's grade rather than actually grading their work, because of COVID-19, they couldn't do the physical grading or the physical exam. Um, you have to think about what types of errors you're willing to allow. And even if what you have is a grading method that on average does a really good job of predicting somebody's grade, and that's really what one can expect from a data science technique, the thing you have to worry about is how good a job is it doing for a particular individual? And so if a particular individual who expected or deserved a particular grade ends up getting a much worse grade because the algorithm had an error, even in that just one instance, that becomes an issue uh, because there are consequences to this individual. Uh, in this particular case, in terms of being denied AP credits or things of this nature, but in other cases, perhaps uh, even stronger consequences, like being denied bail. So one needs to think about how one is using algorithms and think about what the recourses for particular individuals were affected, how one can make sure that the end results are not unfair. And these are potentially tricky issues and ones that are not always considered in the practice of data science and AI today. So I myself have been focused on something that I call data equity systems. So we have, um, National Science Foundation grant to build a national framework for integrative data equity systems. And the basic idea here is that there are issues of equity in society and data is not neutral. It reflects and sometimes magnifies these inequities. And so if we have data-driven systems, they can provide value, they can provide efficiency, they can allow us to do things that we couldn't do otherwise. And so we would like to use them, but we would like to use them 
in ways that ameliorate rather than magnify the inequities that we have in society. And so what we're doing is trying to develop technology components for what we call data equity systems. These are piece parts of a solution, not a complete solution, but piece parts of a solution that provide mechanisms to enhance equity or uh, provide algorithms that enhance equity when they're used. I think that we have data collection everywhere and it's inexpensive and it's valuable for lots of reasons. And once you've got collected data, it's amenable to analysis. And there are lots of things that one can figure out from this analysis that is of potential value. So for example, if you have an old fashioned meter in your home, there is, you, there is just an accounting of the total amount of gas or water or electricity that you used. And it might be a mechanical meter that goes round and round as say water flows into your home. And at any point in time, you could read the meter and see how much you had used since the last time you read the meter. And most of us don't bother to read the meter at all. The company reads the meter you know, once a month or, or whatever and, and sends you a bill. Today, commonly these things are being replaced by what are called smart meters. And these smart meters report the usage that has been observed in electronic form and it saves the company money. They don't have to send somebody out to read your meter. It also gives them information about the usage. This can be used, for instance, to detect that you have a leaky faucet and the company can help you by saying, hey, you, did you know you have a leaky faucet that you need to fix? It can be used to turn off the water if you had frozen pipes that burst. The company will see the excess water flowing into your house. And so there are things that they could do to help you take care of your house. But then this also comes at a cost, which is because they see instant by instant how much water is being used, they know every time you flush your toilet, they know how long you took a shower, they know when you wash your clothes. And so they know when you're away on vacation because the normal usage isn't happening. They know when you have guests at home because the usage goes up. And maybe these are minor invasions of privacy that you don't care about, or maybe these are things that you care about. The point is that this information is available to somebody who you're getting water service from as a side effect of the fact that they're measuring how much water you're consuming. It's, it's this kind of taking everyday 
interactions and putting them under a lens that makes it possible for things to be deduced and, and then potentially acted upon that is a, an issue that people struggle to make sense of and make sure gets done in an appropriate way. If one looks at inequities in society, um, race is, of course, one of the major ways in which we have lots of historic and current injustice. And this gets reflected in the data that one obtains. And if one is making data-driven decisions, whatever decisions one might be making, those data-driven decisions are likely to be therefore influenced very heavily by what has been observed. And this is something that I think uh, most people would find uncomfortable at the very least. And um, things could be really bad at worst. So for example, when one looks at Google's autocomplete on searches, it turns out that there are many people who search for hate-filled terms. And so if you took sort of a standard race-related something, you know, even something that was as simple as, or potentially as innocent as saying, you know, black girls are, there would be a number of nasty autocomplete suggestions that Google search would provide, reflecting simply what were popular ways in which that search was uh, conducted by its user base. Now, this particular thing was pointed out a few years ago and it's uh, no longer the case. And so there's a Band-Aid on this one point, but you could now change this somewhat, try uh, a different phrasing, and you can see how hate-filled the world is sometimes. There are other things that happen with respect to race. One that is particularly common with things involving visual analyses, you know, say labeling photographs, you know, determining whether your eyes are open or shut when you're in a photograph, things of this nature, you know, facial recognition for face ID. In all of these sorts of things, one is relying upon visual cues and the algorithms that deal with this are trained on a bunch of faces. And they have a variety of faces that they're trained on. And 
it matters what color and tone you have in the faces that are in the data set. And here it isn't even so much an explicit question of race uh, as it is of color. And so if you have very dark skin tones, the contrasts are different. Recognizing facial parts and recognizing what characteristics one is learning for uh, requires much more of the algorithm than if you had lighter skin tones. And since the majority of the training data is going to be lighter skin tones, we have had notorious problems with tools that are trying to work with these darker skin tones. To the extent that even very simple things have not worked. You know, things like dispensers that won't recognize that there's a hand that is in the spot where there's a tiny little camera that, that's just checking to see one before it sends out a shot of whatever it is, disinfectant. It, it needs to be a light enough colored hand or it doesn't work. So I think that these, these sorts of issues of race appear in many ways and they appear even when there is no intention to do harm on the part of whoever's building the system. It's just that people have to think consciously about issues of race. One has to think consciously about the different ways in which the world today is equitable and make sure that the systems that are constructed are designed to address these inequities and not just reflect or magnify them. I see the current situation with COVID-19 as a real challenge. It's challenging all of us in so many different ways as we readjust our lives and, and figure out how to manage so many aspects of our lives that have been appended by the pandemic. From a technology or data analysis perspective, I'd like to point out that there are emergencies and there are trade-offs. And when we have these kinds of emergencies, the trade-offs become more stark and one needs to have one's value systems very clear to be able to make good choices. And perhaps the most salient point here has to do with privacy preservation versus contact tracing. Okay. We all care about our privacy and under normal circumstances, we can reason through and say what kinds of uh, things we're willing to permit or what kind of data sharing we, we would like to have. 
and we can worry about you know what kind of data advertisers are able to get and you know what is what gets marketed to us or you know how we can prevent big brother from knowing everything that we do and so on with a pandemic we know that contact tracing is an important thing to do we know that traditional human contact tracing with you know a government employee calling you up and trying to figure out where all you've been and so on is slow it's difficult it's error prone it relies upon how much you remember and what you can tell and if you've interacted with strangers if you've been in close proximity with strangers you really are unlikely to be able to report that because you don't they're strangers you can't say well i was within 6 feet of this person for an extended period of time when we were traveling together on this bus or something like this right um at best you'll be able to say i took this bus and then somebody else will have to figure out who else was on that bus and we won't know uh who was closer to you and who was farther away from you you know there there's just it's just very hard to do good contact tracing one makes use of technology one can do a much better job of it one can have cell phones for instance do a pretty good job of location tracing there are apps in place that'll immediately notify anybody who has been within some distance uh of anybody else who was also running this app um all you have to do is to put in to an app your information saying hey i got tested positive and uh anybody who you'd met in the past so many days met being you'd been in close proximity of um as determined by the apps could be notified from their apps and doing this requires a certain amount of sharing of information about your location and there's a lot of things that people are doing to try to develop this in clever ways so that your location information doesn't become public it doesn't get shared with authorities and so on and yet you can get notifications but in some countries the way that this works is if you get tested positive your location history is made public as a public health measure um that's a trade off and we need to understand what trade offs uh we want to make and i think that the the issue is not and almost never is an all or nothing we need to say we have an emergency situation certain impositions on privacy might be appropriate to do we need to think through what is the smallest imposition that will get us to what we need to get us where we want uh we need to say how can we limit the purpose 
How can we limit the duration for which the data is held? These are all reasonable things that one can ask. And then to the extent that things are really an emergency and one doesn't even have the time to figure these things out, one can say, well, here's a real emergency situation. We're gonna break all the rules. We can do whatever we want because it's a real emergency. But even there, one is subject to a review after the fact of whether the choices made were reasonable and whether one is under the circumstances making a best faith effort, a good faith effort to do the reasonable thing. And these, these trade-offs are just hard, but one has to think about them and one has to think about some of the guiding rules in advance so that one can act appropriately uh, when the need arises. AI is something that everybody talks about these days and it's really impacting everything in society. The thing to recognize that AI is a set of methods that one applies that is built on top of a lot of data. And so, you know, when I say data science, I, I say that because I think of that as a broader term that includes AI. We are collecting a lot of data, we're using a lot of data, and we're using all kinds of methods, and in particular AI methods, to analyze and utilize this data. In terms of the impact on society, it's huge. And I think that technologists, in spite of their best efforts, only have some limited understanding of all of the so social and societal implications of their work. I think that every member of society needs to have an understanding of enough of an understanding of the technology and how it's being used so that we can have good social societal consensus on what is appropriate behavior. The more we have strong social norms, the more we will have companies and other actors observe these norms. If there aren't societal norms that are shared, then people are free to make choices and these choices are likely to get made in a self-serving fashion. And so what kind of use of data is appropriate is something that we won't have a societal consensus on if we don't talk about it and if we don't understand it. That's why I think it's really important that everybody irrespective of their field of expertise, just as responsible members of society should participate in this discussion. The other thing that I want to say is in terms of the technologists, the people who are developing these AI and data science methods, I think that it is critical that they understand what the impacts are on society and how to think about their responsibility and the ethical principles associated with it. And for this reason, I have uh, developed four years ago, a MOOC 
an online course that's free uh, called Data Science Ethics. And that's currently carried on both the edX and the Coursera platforms. And I'm currently in the process of developing a significant extension to that, a course, in fact, a set of courses on ethics in the age of AI, uh, which will be on the Coursera platform by the end of the year. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.